Hey, hey, this is Yarrow, and you're listening to Vested Capital episode number nine, featuring my guest, Jonathan Little, a professional poker player with over $7 million in career winnings and the co-founder of PokerCoaching.com and the head coach there as well, a membership site with over 5,500 paying members, so a multi-seven-figure business. Vested Capital is a podcast about how people make money, build capital, and then put their capital to work. I interview startup founders who've enjoyed big exits, angel investors, venture capitalists, crypto, stock traders, real estate investors, and leaders in tech, and of course, now, professional poker players as well as you're about to hear with this interview with Jonathan Little, who has made over $7 million in career earnings and is the owner and head coach of PokerCoaching.com. In this interview, uh, we go back in time and hear about Jonathan's early days, first as a gamer in Magic the Gathering, a different card game that was kind of his gateway to playing poker. It was also a game I used to play as a teenager, so I had to dig a little deeper into what type of Magic Jonathan was playing, and also we talked a little bit about the value of Magic the Gathering cards and how much they have increased over time. And Jonathan actually still owns quite a few highly valuable Magic cards. We then switched gears into his poker career. He was very quick to ramp up to about $30,000 a month in earnings as a professional poker player, mostly due to his ability to focus on the math and studying the, the game itself. He was able to basically take advantage of something that was available to anyone, but he was willing to put in the work and do the math and also look for certain types of tournaments. I think this was a definitely a trend I noticed in a lot of the advice he kept giving throughout the whole poker story was just being smart about which tournaments you enter, looking at the players, and just entering basically a type of tournament where you're slightly better than everyone else playing it. Makes a lot of sense to me as well, but I think there's a skill even in doing that. And there's quite a lot of advice that Jonathan explains here. He talks about how he went from you know a $30,000 a month poker player had some some good wins, had some losses, what it takes to ma- maintain a bankroll, how to use your money as a professional poker player. And then most importantly, I think how he went on to actually have a couple of million dollar winnings in tournaments, but very much using the same philosophy. You can certainly see the strategy that Jonathan talks about a lot in this episode about choosing the right tournaments, practicing your craft, getting not just getting good through the act of playing the game, but studying the game. He's a great example of someone who's focused on one thing and gotten really good at it. And then he's turned that into a business itself in terms of a coaching practice and a, a digital teaching empire. He's a an online poker celebrity in, in terms of how much content he produces. He has a YouTube channel now with over 100,000 subscribers. So you're going to hear that whole journey in this episode. And we talk a little bit towards the end as well about what kind of investments Jonathan has done since he's been in been in nfts lately crypto he's had some property over the years and in fact i met him through angel investing so you hear about that connection as well okay so if you're new to this podcast i would recommend you subscribe there will be a subscription button or a follow button or a plus button somewhere in the podcast app you're using to listen to this episode if you hit that you will then be subscribed to vested capital and will get all the future episodes plus access to the full back catalog of amazing interviews like this one with john Jonathan. If you don't yet have a podcast app, though, you can head to my website and you'll find all the subscription links as well. Just go to yarrow, Y-A-R-O dot blog, B-L-O-G, and you'll find the podcast tab there. Or you can just go straight to bestedcapitalpodcast.com if that's easier for you to remember, and that will redirect to that page. You can find the show on all the main podcast players as well as online for streaming. Okay, that's enough about subscriptions let's start playing the episode here's jonathan little 
All right, Jonathan, thanks for joining me today. It's great to meet you. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be on here. So you are actually the first ever professional poker player to be on my podcast and also a poker coach. I know I've had a, a poker someone in the past. Left to surface that interview and see if you guys maybe even know each other. But as far as I know, you're definitely the, the first person who's ever got the kind of numbers you do in the world of poker in terms of results. And also as a coach running a big membership site, that's about all I know about you so far. So I'd love to dive into that history, but also everything else you're doing. And I should say just for the audience sake that we actually connected on a Slack room for a syndicate we're a part of with uh, Jason Kalkanis and his uh, investment group. So you obviously do angel investing as well. Have I missed anything in summary else that you're kind of involved with or have been involved with? There's a lot going on, right? <laughs> no, I mean, I you, you hit the main <laughs> points. Um, I have a poker training site, pokercoaching.com. I'm part owner of a publishing company that publishes a lot of poker books. All these books up here, I have my hands in substantially. I don't know, gone head first into NFTs recently, probably going to oh, really? torch a bunch of money doing that. And that's <laughs> it. That's it. What kind of NFTs are you looking at? Everything. We have some CryptoPunks. We have some MeBits. We have some Bored Apes. We have some Gift Goats, <laughs> all sorts of stuff. Okay. So my audience probably has no idea what any of those things are, but I appreciate that. I didn't ha have any idea what they were until about a month ago. And then here we are. We're all in. So yeah. why not? <laughs> Just for the sake of the numbers too, I, I know obviously with, with professional poker, a lot of your numbers are reported. Do you, do you have like a summary of your kind of results you can share with us from that world or? Well, so anytime anyone wants to know about anyone's poker results, they can type into Google the person's name, Jonathan Little, and then GPI, that's Global Poker Index or Hinden Mob, it's kind of the same site. And that will list everyone's caches. Now, caches don't necessarily mean profits. Caches mean how much you have cash for in tournaments, not counting your buy-ins. Some people who have millions of dollars in winnings are losers. Some people who have hundreds of thousands of dollars in caches are winners. But I have something like $7 million in caches, give or take. I've been around for a long time. I was player of the year. We have a bunch of trophies behind me if you're watching the, the video here. And I've been around for a long time, so. Reasonably good poker player, certainly not the best in the world, but I don't know, top 100 tournament player, give or take, something like that. Yeah, I don't think the averages have won 7 million. But can you clarify when you said like some people can win millions but not be profitable? I know there's all kinds of things going on behind the scenes with people being staked and, and other things like that. Is that why you might not be profitable or is it simply the cost of being a professional poker player? Well, there's all sorts of things, right? I mean... Imagine you are a professional poker player and you spend $50,000 a year traveling to fancy casinos, right? So if you win $30,000 in the year, but you spend 50K, you're down 20K out the door, right? Even though your results may say, look, I'm up $50,000, I'm crushing it. But like, not really, right? Also, there are a lot of high buy-in tournaments. If you look at the top, I don't know, 50 people on that, those sites I recommended, the Global Poker Index, I would bet some number of them are down despite having, I don't know, $15 million in cashes because... They're buying into $25,000 buy-in tournaments or million-dollar buy-in tournaments as often as they can. And if you buy in for $25 million and you cash for 15, you're down $10 million. But I think it's generally thought that in the poker world, you do not want to actually give clear results for people in terms of this player's down $10 million because nobody wants it publicly known that you're a big loser at poker, right? Because like that's bad for your business to some extent, right? There are a lot of people who just like to gamble and play, play some cards, right? There's always this debate in the poker world of should we have very clear results? And there are thoughts of like maybe making specific tournament tours where they are going to put out very clear results of who's the winner and who's the loser. But at the end of the day, you want to play poker with people who are worse than you at poker because that's how you make money. You make money when people make 
mistakes that you don't make. And that results in you not really wanting the profits and losses of everyone to be very, very clear. Okay. I didn't realize there was as high as a $25 million buy-in tournament. No, $25,000 buy-in. 25, okay, I was going to say. But there are million-dollar buy-in tournaments. Okay. I think the biggest one ever was a million-pound buy-in tournament, which was, I don't know, $1.8 million. So there's there are a few very big buy-in tournaments. Yeah. I don't play in those. The biggest I, have, I play is typically about $100,000, and you know that's on the upper end of what I can handle. It's important to make sure, if you're trying to be a professional, that you do not act like a degenerate gambler, and you don't <laughs> risk too much at any individual point in time. So- you have to have some discipline and you want to make sure you're playing in games where there are worse players than you. Because if you're the worst player, you're not making any money and then you're the gambler. Fair enough. And in terms of your coaching side of the business, any numbers you're happy to talk about there? Because I think that's a pretty big business you've got going, right? Yeah, we have about, I don't know, 5,500 active paying members. It's a membership site where we have all sorts of content. We have interactive quizzes. We have live webinars where the students can interact with a lot of the best players in the world in real time. We have live streams where you can watch some of the best poker players play their high stakes games live and ask them questions. We have in-depth courses. I have a tournament course there that's about 40 hours long, which will teach you everything you need to know to beat poker tournaments. It's big, it's in in depth, it's advanced, but that's the kind of stuff you need to be studying to actually succeed at a reasonably high level. There's a lot of stuff there. People can check it out at pokercoaching.com slash free. And I hired some of the coaches to teach like relatively low level content because I realized a lot of the people who come to me are beginners. But then I also hired some of the players who are like literally the best in the world. And I hired them to effectively teach me because I'm always trying to learn from the best players in the world. We have one guy who was recently the number one online tournament player in the world. And he's just playing all the big games and crushing it. And I want to learn from that player. So there's, there's low level stuff, high level stuff, whatever you need to succeed at poker is there. Awesome. Okay. So pokercoaching.com and slash free. If you want to get started for free, that that's awesome. Appreciate the the share. I'd love to know how that business grew, but I, I really would like to start at the very beginning here with you, Jonathan. So can we go back even, I don't know, teenage years? Was that when you were interested in poker or what were you focused on at that time? And where were you born as well? Yeah. So I was born in Pensacola, Florida. There was no casinos, no gambling in Pensacola, Florida. The closest place was Biloxi, Mississippi, which is about a two hour drive away. And so I didn't know anything about poker, gambling, et cetera, but I played a lot of games as a kid. I was decently good at chess and I found a game, Magic the Gathering, that I was really good at as well. And I would go play Magic the Gathering tournaments. This is a card game, kind of a mixture between chess and poker. It also has some financial implications with trading, which is neat as well, like baseball cards or whatnot. So anyway, we would play Magic tournaments every two or three days. And I would play, I was a very good magic player there. And one day, another one of the players said, why don't we play a $1 buy-in poker tournament? Tiny stakes after the magic tournament. So we all said, sure, we all put up our dollar. And it turns out that guy and one other guy won almost every time. And I knew chess was a skill game. I knew magic was a skill game. And I thought maybe this poker is a skill game. So I bought a few poker books And I studied them, I read them, and then I put $50 into an online poker site called Party Poker and started playing tiny stakes games. I played, I think, 25 cent, 50 cent Limit Hold'em. Limit Hold'em is kind of a dead game now. This was, I don't know, 15 years ago, 17 years ago, whatever it was, 2003, 18 years ago. Goodness, time flies. So I played tiny stakes games, and over the next few years, I turned the $50 into something like $350,000 by the time I was 21. So we, we grinded it up. I eventually transitioned to No Limit Hold'em, which became popular back in that time. And I got very good at a particular format called sit-and-goes, which are essentially nine-person tournaments. Everyone buys in for 
let's say $100, and then the winner gets 50% of the prize pool. Second place gets 30%. Third place gets 20%. And that's it. Everybody else gets nothing. These were very fast structured tournaments that resulted in you becoming very shallow stacked quickly. And as the stacks get shallow, it becomes more of a straight math game because there's no reading people or anything like that online to some extent. So you just follow what the math says. And there were a few programs out there that I had access to that apparently other people did not, or they didn't use them properly. And that resulted in me being a big winner in those games. So by the time I was 21, I was making, I mean, I don't know, 30 or $40,000 a month playing this really like easy mathematical game. And that resulted in me dropping out of college because I was making a bunch of money back then. When I turned 21, I started playing live poker tournaments because I was watching people on the World Poker Tour and World Series of Poker play, and I thought I could probably play better than them. So that sort of gave me my launching pad into the live poker space, the fact that I you know, studied that game a lot. Yeah, that was that. But I mean, whenever I was 19 to 21, all I really did was play poker and study poker, like 14 hours a day, every day. And... That will make you really good at poker or whatever you're doing, but like pretty bad at everything else in life. So I had like no friends, no good relationships or anything like that. And it's tough because I don't know if I would recommend that to people because it's not, it's probably not good for your mental well-being to sit in your room all day studying poker and playing poker. And at the same time, if I look at a lot of the best poker players in the world, they've all done that exact same thing. So to get really good at anything, I do think you need to have some period of time where you just go really, really deep on it and learn as much as you possibly can. Okay, now I want to continue the poker story, but I have to go back to the Magic years. I was actually a Magic the Gathering player in Australia at sort of the mid to late 90s. Is that when you were sort of playing? Were you playing the Pro Tour? I did not play the Pro Tour. I qualified for it, I think twice, but I didn't get to go because I was, I don't know, 15 years old or whatever. My parents wouldn't let me go to China or wherever they had it. Fair enough. I think it was, I don't know what it was. Anyway, I was playing like locally at, you know, I would travel to... Louisiana and South Florida to play tournaments. And I was not like the best player in the world or anything. I was, I played a lot of vintage, unfortunately, or fortunately, depends on how you look at it, where I lived, they played a lot of vintage because they, a lot of people just wanted to play with the cards they had. This is a format where you get to play with all the cards. And I was, I guess, better than them. And at Magic, it's in vintage. It's unfair to some extent where you get to have just way better cards than your opponents. So then I would like never lose. Me and one other guy had all the good cards. Everybody else did not have good cards. So you just, me and the other guy won every tournament. So I got to be number 11 in the world ranked in vintage at one in point. Vintage, wow. In vintage. And uh, does that mean you probably, have like... I mean, they got rid of the rankings a long time ago, but I looked it up. I was still like number 15 or something, despite wow. not playing in many years. The rankings are clearly silly though. Yeah, uh, they were fun to look at. But I'm curious then, if you played vintage, this really ties into, I guess we look at today's world of Magic the Gathering. You look at like a Black Lotus card or the Power Nine, those are investments in themselves. So did you have and still have those cards from back in the day or... Yeah, so I had a very good Magic collection back in the day, and I was working a job at an airport that resulted in me... I played a Magic tournament one day. I got home at 4 a.m., had to be at work at 6 a.m. the next day, okay? Got home, left all my stuff in the car, went to sleep, and somebody robbed me. So they took all of my good Magic cards. But I went back. I I remember I bought a deck for like $20 out of the, the common bin or whatever, grinded it back up, and had a good collection then. After I got into poker, though, I played like no magic because if you're making many hundreds of dollars per hour playing poker, why in the world would you go play magic to make no money? So I stopped playing magic. And then it must have been about 10 years ago, I sold my collection for like 20,000 bucks or something, which, you know, is is a good amount of money, but today it'd probably be worth a million bucks or something. Yeah. (laughs) 
something like, I don't know, it must've be eight years ago or so now. I just started like buying up magic cards because I thought, I noticed the power nine had not really increased recently. These are expensive magic cards and dual land, same thing. I thought they were all relatively cheap at like a hundred dollars per card or whatever it was. So now I have a, a pretty big collection again. I have a Instagram account called Daily Magic Muse, where I post a magic card whenever I feel like it. I used to post every day, but uh, whenever I feel like it, I have a pretty big collection. Have a, I'm really into signed and altered cards. I also noticed that it's going to sound a little bit morbid, but if the artist of the card dies, that card goes way up in value if it is signed and or there is art on it. So I have like an altered power nine set. All of my dual ends are altered in some way by the original artist and... That may pay off. It may not. I think it will, though. And it's good to have fun, unique stuff that's kind of high end. It's almost like art, right? There's one Mona Lisa or whatever, and it's incredibly valuable, right? There's only one altered Black Lotus like mine by Christopher Rush and sitting right down there on the floor. Wow. <laughs> so anyway. Okay. Is it, is, it a, is it beta or unlimited? Or No, no, no. You do not want to get the beta ones altered because the beta say. ones are worth <laughs> a lot more money. You want to get the unlimited beat up ones altered. Because then, like, you can't really decrease the card's value all that much. Because from a collectible point of view, if a card is in, like, pristine mint condition, you don't really want to mess that up. But if the card's already, like, the lowest grade it can be within reason, you can't really make it any worse. So it, it, it only improves the value to get it altered at that point. Makes sense. I can see why you're into NFTs if we fast forward to the present. The, the collectible, individual, unique aspect of that would, would tie in very very nicely. Oh gosh, who knows? It's tough because, you know, who knows? It's, it's a bit of a gamble, but you know, you find spots you think are good, you load in and, and pray. <laughs> well, who would have thought that Magic the Gathering is still here today, like, you know, 30 plus years-ish ago, and these cards are worth so much. I would never have guessed that in, you know, when I was playing. So. so funny enough, my parents were just in town and my mom brought, it was called a memory book from when I was in eighth grade. And there was a page on it on my three favorite things. They were computers. It was like an Apple computer. Magic the Gathering, and what was the other one? Oh, Nintendo. And I was thinking, if I had invested in those three things back in the day, I would just be filthy rich. Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> Because, you know, all of those stocks have gone through the roof. And instead, I didn't. I just played the games, and now we're not. I mean, we're, we're doing well off. But you know what I'm saying, right? Like, and, and the page was called Fantastic Fads. I'm like, look, this wasn't a fad. I, the whole, all three of these things are, are booming. That's awesome. No, it's funny too, because then we become adults and we start something else, in your case, poker, and, and you know that becomes our, our main focus. But it's not that unusual. I remember when I was playing Magic, there were so many people who went for Magic. It was like a, a gateway drug into poker, a professional poker, I feel like. So can we continue your story switching back to Pokerland? So you're making like 30,000-ish a month playing online with your sort of mathematical formula, which is not a guaranteed win, but it sounded like at that time, it was certainly an advantage for you. What happened next? Like, do you do you save that money? Like, how does a, a, a poker player think about this? Are you buying property on the side? Are you thinking, I, I want to graduate to bigger tournaments, so I need more money to buy in? Like, what's the, the philosophy there? It's a bunch of questions there. So first things first, all you really have to do to win at poker is find a game you can beat, play it a ton, and keep a proper bankroll. So back then, I was playing these $200 buy-in sit-and-go tournaments, nine-person tournaments, and my edge was relatively small. I would win $5 or $10 per game. But I would then play 3,000 or 4,000 of them each month. And it turns out if you're putting in a lot of volume, even with a relatively low edge, you just like can't lose. I think I had like two losing months and they were like marginally losing months over the course of two years doing this. And this is how it works, right? If, if, at the end of the day, volume cures variance to some extent to where you'll have swings, but you just know they don't matter because you are like a clearly proven winner. Now in games like 
multi-table tournaments with a lot of people, like 100 people or 10,000 people, there's going to be way more variance, right? And that's why, you know, volume becomes very important. You want to play a lot of games and that makes it to where you essentially get to the long run at some point. And as you are playing games with more and more people, like 500 person tournaments or 1000 person tournaments, you need a proportionally bigger and bigger bankroll because you don't win a 500 person tournament all that often, whereas you win a nine person tournament pretty often, right? Even if you're break even, you win at one in nine compared to one in 500. So if you only get a good payout one in 500 or one in 200 or whatever it is, if you play one game per day, you're going to get one or two good scores per year, which is not very often, right? I realized that a long time ago, and I've always put in a lot of volume purposefully whenever I am playing, and I still do that today. Whenever I play, I try to play as much as I reasonably can in the time I have allotted. Back then, what did I do? So by the time I turned 21, I had about $350,000, which is a good amount. Probably not quite enough to be playing the highest stakes live tournaments back then, which were $10,000 buy-in games. In reality, you probably need, I don't know, one and a half million, give or take. So the first year I played, I was playing mostly $1,000 tournaments, $1,500 tournaments, which were which are still most of the tournaments that exist. And I did very poorly for the first year. I lost about $200,000, which is frustrating, but I understand why. It's because I was really good at that short stack mathematical poker game. I was not good at the deeper stacked game because I had not studied it at all, right? I was really good at a particular form of poker, but not the form of poker that was being played in live casinos where you're playing deeper stacked and the payout structure is very different. Remember back to the nine-hated tournaments, 33% of the people get money back. Whereas in a multi-table tournament in casinos that you see on TV, something like 10% of the people or 15% of the people get money back. So the payout structure is very different. Also, if you win a nine-person tournament, you get four or five buy-ins, right? So if you buy in for 200 bucks, you get $900 back, let's say. But if you buy into a $200 tournament with 1,000 people, you may win back gosh, I don't know, $60,000, right? It's like a substantial amount more. So the payout structure was very different and I did not properly adjust to those things for a while. But I was always talking to good other, other good poker players on poker forums and studying from them. I eventually realized the error in my ways and things started going better. When I was 22, I had a good score in the Bahamas and that was a fifth place in a World Poker Tour tournament for 320,000, which is quite nice. Going back to backing, I was back then, but I still got to keep a large chunk of it. We kept grinding it up. <laughs> that means like take the winnings you, you get, put it into the next tournament, winnings, that yeah. sort of thing? Or? Well, so you asked, what do we do with the money? Yeah. Back then. <laughs> At 23 too. You- well, I, I made a few errors with money back in the day. Well, I call, I call them errors looking back. It's like fine. But my parents always taught me you're supposed to go to school, get a degree, buy a house, and then you're set. So I bought a condominium with my money when I was like 19 years old. So... I had that 320K, but then I put like $100,000 of it down on this condominium that was effectively paying it off. But then that kind of locks up that $100,000. And for all practical purposes, it's just gone, right? So when I was 20, I went on a bit of a downswing at some point. I forget exactly how this went, but I resolved that I was going to move down to the small stakes games and just win 100 buy-ins at every level. So I was going to play $10 games, win 100 buy-ins. If I won that, I'd move up to 20, then 30, then 50, then 100. And over the course of a few months, I got back to the top. But there was one point where I forget exactly how the, the numbers work, but like half my money was locked up in this house and I really didn't want to go broke. Some poker players think it's exciting or extravagant to feel risk and to feel excited and feel adrenaline when you're playing. But I want none of that. I just want to be printing my money, right? I just want to show up, use my skills, print money and not worry about not being able to eat or having a roof over my head, right? So I've always been a little bit more conservative with my bankroll in general than 
some poker players, especially the old school poker players who were often either really rich or really broke. But I think a lot of people who came up in poker like I did have been relatively conservative with their bankroll to the point that they're never really at risk. And locking up a, a third of my money, it made it to where I did not have the opportunity to play bigger games profitably that I otherwise could have done if I did not do that. That said, the alternative would be to rent a place. And that's sometimes good, sometimes bad. It depends on your life scenario. But as a young kid, I did not need to be buying a house because who knows if I'm going to continue living in that exact place for any amount of time. That was probably a mistake, but you know, whatever, it's fine. The money's locked up. It, it does okay. It's not like it's the end of the world. It's hard to say. Like Your risk profile at that age meant you probably would have been happy to, to put more money into riskier things than a property. At the same time, you know, it's the most common advice we get from most generations is to buy a property as soon as you can. It's safe. It's consistent. So you, you know, and it sounds like you kind of did both. You still managed to, you know, have a, a start of a poker career, right? So yeah. So well, what I did is after I started winning poker tournaments, I eventually won a tournament for a million dollars and another one for a million dollars. I was the player of the year and a bunch more trophies up here for all the people who are uh, watching the video. It was all like all we did. We did pretty well, right? And every time I, well, so eventually you don't need any more money in your bankroll because your bankroll is so big to the point that you are properly bankrolled for the games. So I mentioned we needed a million and a half dollars to play these tournaments. Anything more than a million and a half dollars in theory should be invested in something else because it's just sitting around not really doing anything for you. And back then they did not really have tournaments bigger than $10,000. That's very different today. But back then that was kind of like the biggest that you could play. So once we got above some amount, I would start buying a house every time and then using it either to live in or to rent out. And I think I ended up with four places over the course of a few years and they were all generating some amount of rental income and that was good. What a lot of poker players do with their money initially when they win it is they go out and they party and they blow it. <laughs> but uh, I never really had that issue. If anything, my quote unquote leak was locking up money to the point that sometimes I would have liked to be able to access it, but I but I couldn't, right? So I would not necessarily recommend it, like real estate to poker players, particularly because it's not liquid. You kind of want your money to be in something that ideally returns capital, but is also liquid. Go back to angel investments. Probably not the best investment for most people because that money is super locked up. At least you can sell a house if you need to. You can't really sell a small fraction of a company that is you know, two years into existence. It's not worth a ton of money. But that said, as you get more and more money, you need to find more and more ways to lock it up in a diversified way or in ways that you just enjoy that you think will be reasonably profitable. And I mean, that's what I do. I've been lucky to the point that I've been able to lock up some money, right? A lot of poker players find themselves in a spot where let's say their bills are $5,000 per month and they make $6,000 per month on average playing. And so they're not really banking a ton of money each month. But I was always like, I, I tried to live relatively cheaply. Like I never flew first class or never stayed in nice suites or anything. And I was reasonable is what it amounts to. A lot of poker players, when they get a hold of a million dollars, they start being very unreasonable. And, you know, they start flying first class everywhere and staying in the biggest suite in the place. And I recognized that I had been relatively fortunate to win a few big tournaments. And I realized I could easily go on a downswing because I remembered back to my first year of playing live poker. I like lost everything for six months and I've had multiple bad downswings in live tournaments since then. And in, in between those two scores, right? It happens. And I understand the variance that is inherent to poker and I, I plan for it to some extent. I don't just think I'm going to continue winning indefinitely. Because, I mean, look, whenever you play, you have an edge, but you only really cash out that edge in tournaments when you win one of the big tournaments, which happens one in 100 times, which just isn't that often. And if it's a one in 100 shot, you may not get it for 500 tournaments. Which leads me to a question. What does it take to get to the point where you even had that one in 100 chance to win 
like a million dollar return in poker? Like what, oh, what changed even your own life practice, you know, skill set? How much is practice versus luck versus just time playing those sorts of things? Well, so a lot of people view poker as a get rich quick scheme to the point that they try to win that million dollars. They see people like uh, Chris Moneymaker, who turned whatever it was, $25 into two and a half million on ESPN when he won the World Series of Poker back in 2003 and thought, oh, I'd like to do that. It's like, yeah, obviously. But it turns out poker is a great way to get rich slowly, but a really bad way to get rich quickly because then you're just kind of treating it like a parlay. Like imagine you had to watch the baseball games today and pick five of them. They all have to win. It's easier said than done. <laughs> like really, really hard to do that, even if you bet on all the favorites. That's kind of how a lot of people treat poker. I mean, every year, a lot of people play locally in games they can beat and they play a lot and they win five or $10,000. And then they take all of that money and they go out to the World Series of Poker, which is a big poker tournament series in Las Vegas. And they play way bigger than they normally do because at home, maybe they play $100 games, but at the World Series, they play $1,500 games. And they give themselves a few shots to try to get rich and win a thousand person tournament. And they almost always all go home broke. And then they do it again the next year. They try to win $10,000 or they win $10,000, take it back out, lose it again. Yeah, you get rich sometimes, but why would you not just grind at home and make $10,000 for, let's say, five years? Now you have $50,000. You can go out there, play $500 tournaments with 100 buy-ins and give yourself a real shot to actually grind it up. But instead, they want to try to get rich. And that results in most people failing. So the idea of how do you get in a space where you can win a million dollars in a poker tournament you can go about it in a lot of ways. You can gamble really hard or you can be really nitty. <laughs> and um, I've been pretty pretty cautious in, w- with my bankroll in those situations. And that's given me actually a good shot to do it because I was willing to sit there and grind it out by myself in my room for 14 hours a day for three years straight to get a hold of some money, right? And then when I played live tournaments for the first year, I played like every small stakes tournament because I realized that's what I needed to do. I was not properly bankrolled for the big games. And if I did hop right into the big games, when I turned 21, I would have lost all my money, would have gone broke. Because I probably lost 50 buy-ins, but 50 $300 buy-ins is only 15000 bucks or whatever it is, right? Whereas 50 $10,000 buy-ins is $500,000, and I only had 350 and 100 of it was locked up. So I would have gone broke if I just hopped right into the biggest game. So I try to be reasonable with it, right? But when you say that, though, is, a lot of this is, you're, it sounds like you're crunching numbers, but how much of this is simply you getting better as a poker player? Yeah, ideally you want to get better. Well, so going back to the things you have to do to succeed, you have to find a game you can beat right? Find a game you can beat, play it a lot, keep a proper bankroll. And you can either find a game you can beat by playing with worse opponents or by improving your skills to the point that people who are equally skilled to you become worse opponents, right? If you look at a lot of the biggest winners in poker, actually, they are not actually all that good at poker. They just play in really soft games. There are people who play private games in Los Angeles with celebrities or hedge fund managers in New York who play and they don't let pros play. It's just like a bunch of okay poker players playing, but if they're playing gigantic stakes and someone there is the best player, someone's usually the best player, that player is going to be a gigantic winner. This is like Molly's game. You, know, you, you have to find a game you can beat, right? So you either do that by selecting your game better or just substantially improving your skills. Now, I always realize that you want to be as good as you possibly can because like in chess, for example, if you're just worse than your opponent, you lose, right? And at the end of the day, if you look at poker, the best player just like always wins in the long, in the long run. There is no gamble in it in the long run. You just have to get to the long run. Okay. So in your own personal journey, it was simply a case of just graduating up each level in terms of both your bankroll, your skill set, and then you play enough. Eventually, you start winning, the bigger numbers, basically. 
Right. And, and the thing is, is you make some amount of return on investment every time you play a poker tournament. It's kind of hard to know exactly what it is, but it is some positive or negative number, right? And if you are adequately skilled at assessing player strengths, you can kind of figure out if you're going to win or lose money. And if I don't think a game is good, I just don't play it because I'm not going to play poker and to get my gamble on. I'm going to try to win money. A good example of this, one time I flew to Los Angeles to play a $10,000 buy-in tournament that is always a good tournament. They have a lot of people in it. There's things called satellite poker tournaments where people buy in for like one-tenth of the buy-in and then one in 10 gets their way into the bigger tournament. They're trying to parlay it and get rich quick. You want to play with those players because they're usually not adequately skilled, right? But the day before this $10,000 buy-in tournament, there was a $5,000 tournament with no satellite qualifiers. So the main event was going to have a thousand people. There were a lot of bad players. It was going to be great. But this $5,000 tournament, smaller buy-in, had 60 people in it, and they were all really, really good. So I flew to Los Angeles, looked at this tournament, just didn't play, right? Even though I was probably slightly profitable in the game, my return on investment there may be, I don't know, 5% or 10%. So I didn't really want to sit there for two days or a day or however long it took to win 250 bucks. And the answer is no, I wouldn't. I'd rather sleep. Funny enough, I actually went and played cash games, a different form of poker that I that I play. And there were like no good players in the cash game because they were all having ego battles in this $5,000 tournament. So I ended up winning like $20,000 in the cash games over the course of that day because the games were super soft. There were no good pros in it. So... That's a good example of like game selection, right? Like I flew to the, I flew across the country to play that tournament, yet the tournament didn't look good, so I didn't play it. So you have to have good discipline like that. I was actually just in Vegas recently. They had the U.S. Poker Open, which is a series put on by Poker Go, which puts on a lot of live tournaments. They stream on the internet. People can check that out at PokerGo.com. And you could re-enter the tournaments if you lost. So for like six hours or something like that. If you played the tournament and lose, you could play it again. There was one day where I had the option to re-enter and I just didn't because I looked around the field, the people still playing, and they were all very good. The weaker players had all busted too. So it would be me re-entering in a game with a bunch of very good players. Like there's no edge. Another day I busted and there were a bunch of bad players still in the field. So I happily re-entered, right? And, and that's because I realized I'm going to be in good shape against the weaker players and marginal shape against the best players in the world, right? So you, you want to make sure you're finding games that you are profitable in. And this, this applies to like all forms of investing, right? Like if you don't know what you're doing and your opponents know better than you, you're probably not going to do so well. Right, which is why we might choose someone like Jason and be part of a syndicate because he's the one putting in the time to select the companies to invest in and so on. Well, that kind of goes to the idea of like poker backing where you ideally want to be backing good players where you buy, you give them money to buy a percentage of their action. Do you do, you do that? Do you ever back other players or i uh, have a piece of a backing company called pokar.com p-o-c-a-r-r.com essentially what they do is they take players at the smallest stakes games like five dollar buy-in tournaments online and teach them to the point that they become some of the biggest winners the number one player in the world i mentioned earlier used to be a backy there and you know he won all the money for them right so i don't know they back some number of hundreds of players online and it's like another low risk way to make money because they're putting in a bunch of volume, right? It's not like, so today, imagine there's 100 players playing for me, I don't know, a 25 cent, do, 25 cent poker tournament on average, right? Because I have a tiny piece of everybody. And that's great, right? I just I, I just, I just collect the money, collect the profit. and Yep, it's like a little, little army of poker players every day. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Other players do this in a much more gambly way. Um, like I still sell action and whenever I play $25,000 buy-in tournaments or higher. And... 
Then I essentially sell people action at a tiny markup, meaning let's say it's a $100,000 tournament. 1% would normally cost, let's say, $1,000, right? Maybe I charge $1,020. may say, why even charge the extra bit? Because in theory, I think I have a bigger edge than that 2% VIG I'm charging. Maybe we have an 8% edge or something. So then what happens is me and the backers split that difference. Some people get egregious with the markup, though, and they charge like a 20% VIG. And that's only good if you are a lot better than your opponents. But if you're a lot better than your opponents, why do you need to get backed, right? Yeah. There are. I'm not going to say they're necessarily scammers, but there are people out there who try to essentially take advantage of people. And you want to make sure you are not one of those. You always want to make sure you're, if you are selling action, your markup is reasonable. And I mean, I suppose this happens in investing as well, right? Some people syndicates charge a ton, some charge a little. You have to figure out, is there an edge there? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. It's hard to know. I have a question regarding, I mean, poker as an ecosystem, there's a lot of things that have sort of come on the sides, as I sometimes say, the, you know, the picks and shovels that support the poker players or the different ways to monetize poker without actually being the person to play poker, like supporting someone, backing someone. When did you start looking at that as an option? Because if you had made, you know, you had a couple of million dollar results there, you must have been still thinking, this is my career. I'm a professional poker player. I play this game for a living. But now you're a coach. You just said you're, you know, part owner of a, a backing company. When did that start in, in your mindset as something you thought would be smart to do? I don't know if it ever really occurred to me that I was doing it. Um, I used to post on a various poker forums where I would get advice from people and I would give advice to them, right? And it turns out a lot of people liked the advice I freely gave to other people. And that makes you a you know valued member of the community, right? I eventually made a training site with two other guys that taught people how to beat sit and goes, which probably wasn't the smartest idea because it was an easy game. And it turns out sit and goes today are not really all that profitable. No one wins at them. So that's a bummer. That game's dead, right? Because like, why, people may ask, why don't you just keep right. doing that? Because the game's not hard. Everybody learned and now nobody wins. You can't uh, find a game you can beat anymore at the medium or high stakes. So, so you were kind of partially responsible for killing the game that you started in poker with. I was unfortunately very responsible for killing very, that game, okay. <laughs> okay. which is a bummer. It's funny. Today I have people come up to me all the time like, oh yeah, I, mean, I used to watch the sit and go games, sit and go videos you made and I beat them until they died. I'm like, yeah, well, mm. so did I. <laughs> so anyway, that's unfortunate. So you have to be a little bit careful that you don't you don't make the game unbeatable. But now, how did I get into this? So I was making videos for a training site called, it was a European poker site, doesn't really matter what it was. And another person there was the owner of a publishing company, D&B Poker, which I'm now a part of. And they asked me to write a book because they love my videos. They love my posts on the forum and they thought I could make a good poker book. They didn't have a book on poker tournaments. They asked me to write it. And I had already taken on a few private students. And what I would do is every time they would ask me a question, I would just write an article about it. So I could give it to anybody else who asked me the same question, right? Essentially scaling back then before I knew what scaling was. And I would write an article one time and be able to share it with whoever wanted it, whenever it made sense. And I actually had like 400 pages of articles written on various topics already. Because, you know, you ask me a question about a topic, I'll write a page or two about it. There it is. We're good to go. I had about 400 pages worth. And... I made an outline for a book and uh, we put it all together. There were a few spots I had to go through and fill out, uh, you know, that, that I had not written about, but I had them a 500 page book in something like two weeks. I'm like, oh my God, how'd this guy write a 500 page book in two weeks? But I already had it done, right? I like, I didn't even know I was doing it. But I mean, like, how did I get into it in the first place? I was helped by a lot of people. I would not be where I am today without the help of people who came before me and are still crushing the biggest games. And 
it seems reasonable to give back to other people, right? I mean, they help you, you help other people, you help them in whatever ways you can, and you all build and grow together. I mean, poker looks like a solitary game, but it's to some extent, it's kind of a team sport where you're not the best at a lot of things, and I'm not the best at a lot of things, but somebody else may be, and you can help them with that. Like, I was not really good at playing deep stack poker, so I had to learn a lot from other people, but I was really good at playing the shallow stacked form of poker. So I helped a lot of people with that when they were not so good at it, right? And, you know, you take your weaknesses and try to improve using other people's strengths. And I was just like naturally doing this. And some people took notice and wanted me to work with them. We wrote books. The books sold really well. We had the training site that killed the sit and goes. We eventually moved to multi-table tournaments, which is like the most popular form of poker that you see on TV. And we started making content for that. Eventually, the other two guys in the business got out. I took it over. It went through a few iterations, but eventually we we are where we are today. The training site was... Interesting because I had this coaching. This was before it was called pokercoaching.com. Okay. It's been through a few other iterations. The names don't matter because they're no longer here. But I basically had a site that was losing money. We had, I don't know, 100 members instead of 5,000. And I was paying coaches $500 per hour to make content, which is you know kind of expensive, but that's their hourly rate, roughly. That's what they wanted. So whatever you pay. And I was just like losing three or $4,000 per month for like two or three years. And I didn't really care because... I'd made plenty of money from poker. I viewed it as almost like a community service to some extent, because you know, if I, if I if I can spend a little bit of money to get good, high quality content from good players, share it with other people, lose lose a little bit of money, who cares, right? One day, I'd actually just broken up with my fiance, who's not my fiance today. I have a different wife, different wife. I have a wife now who's a different woman who's very great. <laughs> anyway, I'd just broken up with my fiance. This must have been 15 years ago or something, and I was at a a local casino and I just like randomly played a small buy-in tournament to pass the time while I was drinking sob wine. And so uh, I met a guy there who had just gotten out of a few marketing classes and he said, look, I, I know you have your training site. He asked how I was doing. I said, not great. He said, why don't you make me a video of you playing multi-table tournaments online and I'll try to sell it through affiliates on this site called ClickBank, which still exists. It's an affiliate site where people can just sell your stuff if they like it. So I made an eight hour long video of me just playing online tournaments all day. And I won a ton of buy-ins. Like, I don't even know what it was, but I smashed them. So it looked really good. <laughs> and <laughs> he sold it or started selling it through affiliates. And we made like $10,000 in the first month. And I'm like, oh, this is good because I was losing money. And now I'm get paid $10,000 a month for this one eight-hour video. So he's been with me since then. His name's Dan. He's great. And he does all of our email marketing. And it was me and him for a long time. And eventually we hired on more people to help with all sorts of other stuff. But it's kind of how I got into the content space. I had my own training site that was failing and I probably would have gave up on that at some point and met up with Dan and Dan, Dan made it successful. Okay. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Cause the difference between a hundred members and 5,500 members in a, a membership site is huge. That's, you know, uh, like you said, losing money to making a lot of money. My audience being very much in the information marketing space, they're always interested in how you scale something like this and what's the nuts and bolts. So I could guess I could think it's paid ads. I mean, ClickBank obviously is a, a marketplace that can get you some customers, but I don't think it scales you to 5,500 or maybe it does, but what's worked for you guys really well? We don't do any of that stuff anymore. That was good to okay. get off the ground and it, it proved Dan knew what he was doing to some extent. So we had the failing training site. We immediately cut some of the more expensive content creators to make that basically break even to where it became more of a Jonathan Little site instead of a me and other people site. Because like I was not the biggest name person on the site back then. So we got rid of some of the people and we made that immediate profitable immediately, right? So there we go. We're not losing $40,000 a year or whatever. 
Good. And we have this individual product called it Jonathan Little Secrets. We were selling and making $10,000 per month, which is good. We kind of chugged along just making more and more new products, right? I did not do any email marketing back in the day, but Dan was very good at that. So he was in charge of the email list. I was not good at web design. Dan could do that well enough. So like he did basically everything that I could not do. I was in charge of the content. Dan was in charge of everything else. Do you know how he grew the email list? Just out of curiosity. Well, ClickBank, to some extent, got a lot of people on the email list, but also I would just start promoting it. I was already writing articles for various poker-related publications, um, like Card Player Magazine. They put that out in every local casino, and at the end, we'd say, check out this website to learn more, and people would get on the email list. We had lead magnets, right? We had a lot of free stuff we'd give away. It's good that I have like a lot of free articles, and I can make videos relatively easily, right? So content marketing. Yeah. I mean, that's basically it. Well, I have books, right? My books, anybody who buys one of my books, there's a, a lead magnet in there to say to get this bonus, go here, get on the email list and to get people on the email list. We continued selling individual products for like $100 each for quite a while, but then something like three or four years ago, actually, I'm sure I'm getting the timeline wrong. I don't know, call it five years ago. I knew I kind of wanted to slow down, have a family and be able to stay at home if I felt inclined. And $10,000 per month is good. You're not, I live in Manhattan. It's expensive here. Need to figure out a way to either, well, play poker from home and make a ton of money, which is kind of hard in today's environment from America, or make this training site good. So I started spending a ton of time on it. Instead of making one four or six hour video per month, I was now just making a lot of content. And I also realized we needed to like revamp the training site to make it very different than all the other training sites on the market. And Pretty much all the training sites back then were just me either presenting over a PowerPoint or me playing poker and letting you watch. And that was it. There are three or four other sites on the market. That's that's still all they do today for the most part. We started doing a lot of interactive stuff like live streams where you can ask your questions or you know, have let the students call in and we answer their questions in real time. Basically, we started doing a lot of live things. We also have the 1,200 interactive quizzes where it's kind of like you can go through and play hands and then get immediate feedback from me or one of the other coaches, right? I also, it's going to sound bad, I, I realized people like me. So I started to try to interact more with the fans, right? This was kind of before Twitter to some extent. And maybe it wasn't before Twitter, before Twitter was super popular. And I got on Twitter and started interacting with people, right? And like replying. And a lot of people were like, oh my God, I can't believe you replied. But I reply to everyone. I read every single email that comes in today and I reply as it makes sense, right? So basically I got in there and I did the work and I, I made friends with a lot of people, right? And I tried to add value, whereas a lot of other people want to show up, do four hours of work per month and be done. I decided to turn this into a 50 hour work week job and make loads and loads and loads of content. And that's resulted in other people wanting to work with me and other people wanting to promote the site, right? A switch we made three or uh, two years ago, three years ago was to stop selling individual products and just put it all, everything we had in the past and everything we're gonna make in the future into the poker coaching premium membership, which costs something like $100 per month. We run sales for it. I'm not sure if I'm a huge fan of sales or not, but they seem to work. Dan's good at the sales. I'd rather never put anything on sale, but I think that may be a big portion of our success. And it's tough to know, right? Is one way better or not? I don't know. It's probably better. Sure. I'm sure it's better. <laughs> but <laughs> well, instead, of, work, sell, instead of having so. to sell a product every single month, now people just get in the membership and know they're going to get a whole lot of stuff included, right? And that makes email promotion way easier because now we just have to get really good at promoting one thing. 
which is this gigantic membership that has infinite content, like more than the vast majority of other training sites out there, that's also interactive. And it's kind of like an easy sell because it's just jam-packed with value. The other sites are trying to sell an eight-hour course for $1,000. We're trying to sell 5,000 hours of content for 100, right? It's just kind of a no-brainer. So that was very beneficial. Also, I started making a lot of YouTube content. I hired a YouTube editor who was actually an editor at one of the big poker news sites, got laid off because of COVID recently, and started making a ton of YouTube content. We almost have 100,000 YouTube subscribers now, and that had like none two years ago. So that's just making free content, getting people on the email list, going to pokercoaching.com slash free, right? Doing stuff like this. And that gets people on the list. And then, you know, Dan's in charge from there. Dan has uh, all the content he could possibly need to make good email promotions and like added value emails too. It's not like we're just sending an email saying, buy this thing. Good example of this. Today, I'm doing a webinar where I'm going to go through four like really high level hands that I played on YouTube live, completely free. And then that's going to take 45 minutes. And then for 15 minutes after that, I'm going to promote our next sale that we're doing for Independence Day, right? And I don't know, 10,000, 20,000 people will watch that. And some of those people will like the content. They'll find added value and then they'll go look at it and maybe they buy, right? And we do that on a regular basis. Have a sale every month or two, every month, give or take. We do a lot of stuff. We do a lot of stuff. Yeah, it sounds like you do. It's a lot of content. But really, you just try to add a lot of value. There's this trophy back here. That's for me being Poker Personality of the Year in 2019, which is a award voted on by poker fans. Uh, they didn't have a 2021 because of COVID. There was there were no award ceremonies. But if you do good work and add a lot of value and try to be reasonably accessible, people take notice and they they like it. It's what it amounts to. And if people like you, then they will inevitably take a look at what else you have to offer. I think a lot of people, especially a lot of like training site brands, make the error to some extent of not highlighting the person. Right? There's like here's some content with a bunch of basically random people who don't interact with anyone. Take a look. They'll make you better at poker, probably, but nobody cares, right? You have to make people care for some reason. People care because they like you. I mean, like there are people who stream Magic the Gathering, who I love, right? Not even play Magic really anymore, but I still watch their streams sometimes because I like them. They're personable. I like the way they operate. And if they had a training site, I'd probably subscribe to it, right? Maybe that's what's happening here as well. No, it's a great example of the power of being a, a really helpful i mean it's simply put you're just helping a lot of people and you're being very approachable and personable about it so if you do that for long enough using as many different content distribution channels as you can you're going to get attention you're going to get email subscribers and then you're going to be able to get customers as a result so i can understand the the big picture of of the membership site uh, with dan as as your kind of operational co-founder i guess in that business is that what you would consider your like your main gig now like you're really coach memberships site owner or do you still play poker as much and consider yourself a professional player plus i know you said you're starting a family so you probably have a family by now so things of you know you don't have as much time to do all of those things is that accurate so i have two boys now they're two years old and four years old so for the last five years or so i have been working on the training site a ton before COVID happened, and I guess since COVID's happened, since it's almost over, it is over, whatever it is, I used to, yeah, exactly. I used to play about one week per month of live poker, and I would like try to play a lot in that week. So I would go play very high value tournaments or tournament series. Like a long time ago, I would just play like all the time. I just travel all the time and play whatever was available. And there are some tournament series where they have a main event that's like $3,500, right? And then a few small events that before that that are $1,000 buying tournaments. 
If you go and play that, you may make on average, I don't know, $7,000 in the week, which is fine. But there are other tournament series where the main event is $10,000 and they have a bunch of other good side events where you may make $40,000 on average. There's gonna be a ton of swings, like a ton of swings, but you can do just like simple return on investment math and figure out, well, if I have to pick between one or the other, I'm gonna pick the one that I can make more money at, right? So I'm very selective with the tournament series I go to, to some extent now. I mean, a good example, I just went to go play the US Poker Open in Las Vegas and every other day there was a 10,000 or 25,000 or $50,000 poker, tur- poker tournament for a week or two weeks, whatever it was. And that's like a good high value tournament series where I know I'm going to go out there and make $50,000, $100,000 on average. And that's going to be good. So instead of playing everything, I'm playing the highest value games. I also still try to play online poker, usually one day per week, Sunday afternoons. That's usually the best day to play online poker, just because that's how it is. I still try to play some and stay very relevant, but I also work on the training site, like Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. till 6 p.m. every day. I sit in this office and I work all day. And that's something a lot of people don't do, right? A lot of people want a side job that makes some money, but I'm not looking for a side job to make a little bit of money. I'm looking for a real job to make a lot of money. You talked about sponsorships before, and it's going to sound a little bit bad, but like white American men cannot get sponsorship deals because there are no major poker sites that operate legally within America, right? And there's a lot of white American men who are good at poker. So it's like, we're we're not very different, right? So a lot of people who get sponsored are not from America, from these poker sites. Or if you can get sponsorship deal, like I've been offered a few very good sponsorship deals from sites that operate in America. You're now representing a company that's operating illegally, and uh, you don't really want to be the representative for an illegal gambling site. Seems unwise, especially if you have a family. Just to clarify, why, why is it illegal in America? Legislation? <laughs> the government? I don't know. I mean, look, there's, there, there's this thing called the UIGEA unlawful uh, internet, I don't know what it's called. Uh, some, some, there, there was a law passed a while back that was tacked on to a bill pertaining to 9-11, like the Freedom Act or something, that essentially made gambling online illegal in America. Now that has changed state by state to some extent now, so states are allowed to do whatever they want. So we see online poker now in Nevada, New Jersey, Delaware, a few other places. But you're playing with only people from those states. So inevitably, there just aren't a lot of people compared to a worldwide gambling site, right? And it turns out that money kind of trickles to the top from the bottom. People win at the small stakes, they lose it to the medium stakes. People win at the medium stakes, they lose it to the high stakes. People win at the high stakes, they lose it to the super high stakes, right? People at the super high stakes cash it out. (laughs) And the problem is that if there are not all that many small stakes players, there aren't very many middle stakes players and not very many high stakes players, and you can't really make a ton of money. You can make some good money. Like I have a few students who live in these places. And uh, I've seen their their graphs. They're just like amazing and straight up because the games are soft because there aren't a lot of good players on the site. And they're winning, I don't know, they probably win $100,000 per year, which is perfectly fine. But it's not like get rich money, right? It's fine. Fine and good. Not get rich money. So why is it illegal? Because there's a law that says it's illegal. And that said, some companies still operate in America. One of them banned me recently because I said that they are not as safe as a U.S. regulated bank. You should not keep all your money in the unlicensed, unregulated, illegal gambling site. But they have representatives saying, keep all your money on there, it's perfectly safe. Well, it's just not, right? And I kind of have, I'm kind of a stickler for not inducing people to make detrimental errors, right? Back whenever, it was called Black Friday, when a few of the poker sites were shut down by the U.S. government, a lot of people's money was locked up for years. Mm-hmm. And some of the sites never paid people back. Or if they did pay people back, it was like five cents on the dollar. 
And I don't want that to happen to my students, right? So, you know, protect yourself. Yeah. Be smart. Yeah. It's like holding money in a cryptocurrency exchange. You just don't know yeah. what could happen. So, Yeah, don't leave it all on an exchange. You might get hacked. Seems obvious, right? But you say that publicly, these sites will ban you because they don't want anyone talking bad about them. Fine. That's their, that's their prerogative, right? Should probably tell you uh, how they operate in business. Anyway, anyway. What were I going here? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do not want to be sponsored by an illegal gambling site. And even then, they don't pay like a ton of money. Back in the poker heyday of 2003, 2004, 2005, you could get a deal that paid you hundreds of thousands of dollars per year or more. Like if I was in the spot I am in poker back then, I'm sure I would have gotten a very, very good sponsorship deal. But that's not where we live anymore. We live in this era where not a lot of sites sponsor players. If they do sponsor players, it's for a small amount of money, like 3000 bucks per month. And they want you streaming live all the time on their online poker site, which I'm not going to do because I just don't have the time for it. And you don't need to. And I, and I don't need to. So it's not, it's yeah. not worth the effort is what it amounts to. Yeah. But I realized a long time ago, if I ever wanted to make money at poker by not playing poker, I either needed to get heavily in on the backing side or heavily in on the content creation side. So I, I did both, right? And to be fair, most people in the content creation space in general don't make any money or make a minimal amount of money. But you just have to get it, get to scale is what it amounts to. You have to help a lot of people get better or enjoy what they do more, right? And I work hard to do that. But the idea a lot of people still have today is that I want to become a poker player and get a sponsorship deal. But this problem is, is that's not really worth any money and it takes a ton of effort. Jonathan, so we're kind of getting over an hour-ish or just about an hour. I do have a few more questions. So this show is, is called Vested Capital and we've already covered you were in property early on. Then it sounds like poker became your main source of, of capital and cash flow. Then it started to branch out to a few little like teaching businesses. Then it became poker coaching, which is obviously a big source of your your cash flow. Now you mentioned you're a part owner of the backing staking company that's got lots of hundreds of poker players that you own a little share of how well they do. You mentioned to me when we talked before we even record this that you were Phil Helmut's book launch party and you're part owner of a publishing company that was to do with his book. So there's a lot of things going on. You have magic card investments, you have NFT investments. I'm assuming you probably have some crypto if we even talk about that. If we look back on everything you've done so far and, and where you're at now, what, what has been the most successful source of you building capital and cash flow in your life, if you're, if you're willing to share? Well, so yeah, so poker is really good to take a small amount of money and turn it into a pretty good amount of money, right? Like you can get a hold of a million dollars playing poker, but you're not going to get a hold of a hundred million dollars playing poker. It's just not going to happen. So poker definitely, I mean, it was like all of my income for many years, but eventually you transition over and, you know, crypto has been fine. I haven't gotten rich off crypto. They got me on the ICOs back in the day. So that was great. Should have got into NFTs instead of ICOs, but that's fine. We're not, I, I'm still up, right? So call it what it is. That said, it could drop 50% today and I'd be down, right? The substantial sources of income in my life have been poker. And that has slowly decreased as I've stayed home more. Because if you don't play, you don't win any money. And I've been staying home, having a family, staying home because of COVID, et cetera. And now the training sites become the vast majority of my income. And, and that's just because that's the thing that has done the best. And it turns out I do pretty well when I do things in poker. I do not do especially well when I do things not in poker because I'm not an expert at it, right? Very, very important to invest most of your time and effort in things you're an expert at. How do you get good at something though if you don't try is always the consideration, but you should try things, especially when you're young. But as you get older and older, I think you should probably try fewer things and focus on what you're very good at. I, I have a bunch of students. Some of them are like really good at investing. They're hedge fund managers and whatnot. 
and I, they're, they're effectively my mentors, right? I help them with poker. They help me with life. And I always ask, like, should I be doing something else? And they say, until this poker training site somehow doesn't work, just keep doing this because you're, you have, it's by far your best opportunity. You like it and you're good at it. So don't screw it up. <laughs> A lot of people either get burnt out or get tired or get annoyed and they just want to change, right? But I've done things such as like hire other people to manage the business, to manage the coaches, et cetera, things I don't really like necessarily doing such that I can just make good content. And I like that. That's what I'm good at. And it makes it to where I can't really get burnt out from the poker coaching business and it continues to grow. So whatever, I'm going to do this until there's a reason not to, but I don't, I always can't imagine it's going to continue growing because like how many more people could actually sign up, but it keeps growing. So whatever, we'll keep doing this indefinitely. Everything else is a hobby to some extent that could take off. And to be fair, making training content was a hobby that could have taken off, right? Like I said before, I was losing thousands of dollars per month on this training site hobby. I was just okay with, right? I mean, like it was fine. And it took off. Who knows? I mean, maybe if, if I stopped a month before I met Dan, maybe it would have just been dead and that would have been that. I mean, who knows what's, what's going to happen? Like for all I know, ICOs could have taken off. They wouldn't have. They didn't, but they could have, right? I could have gotten into the one that actually did well, but I didn't. And you never really know what's going to happen in the future. And for that reason, you want to always keep your eyes open for things that you could get into. That said, pretty much everyone out there is really good at something. And you should probably be looking at that space more than others, even if that space is not especially, I don't know, popular, viable, whatever. Like poker has been on a slow but steady decline since 2005 or so, to some extent, due to all sorts of things, right? Like the bad players go broke and they quit. New players try to get in, but the game is tough, so they don't get into it. U.S. government makes it illegal to play online. Like, all these things are kind of negative towards it. And if, like, if you look at Google searches for poker and poker-related terms, they're all just, like, kind of down. That means you just have to do a, a better job of helping people improve, right? But look, I mean, find what you're good at and, and focus on that to some extent because that's where you have an area of expertise. I'm not an expert at cryptocurrency or property or gold or NFTs or any of this, so I dabble, right? Maybe the hobby takes off, maybe it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we talked about angel investing right at the very start. And that, that's another thing that who knows you could be talking about in five years as a, a fairly big windfall or not. You don't really know. Yeah. So I've made a few angel investments by myself before I met Jason Calacanis and they all failed. Okay. And uh, okay. looking at how he goes about angel investing, he tries to find companies that already have pretty good product market, product market fit, products that are companies that have a lot of customers, things that are somewhat differentiated in relatively popular spaces or relatively like good spaces, right? Like you'd probably not want to invest in a poker training site because like I said, a slowly declining space, right? Especially a startup because then you're competing with the other good companies like mine and a few others out there. I like the way he goes about investing in things that make logical sense instead of things that you just like, right? And it's tough. Like I've invested in a few sites to play poker on and they've all failed, but maybe they could have worked, right? It's hard to know. Businesses fail all the time for reasons outside of the founder's control and... You know, I dabble, right? I'm not all in on it. I dabble. And I realized with angel investing, I don't know what I'm doing here. So you find experts and you follow them. And fortunately, with things like syndicates, you can sign up, get updates from various companies and learn what they're doing. Um, for example, through Jason, I've invested in FitBod, which is a app that teaches you how to work out, basically. It's like a, a workout training app, a membership site. Sounds kind of like mine. I teach people to get good at poker. They teach people to get in shape. And I've learned a lot of stuff about like marketing through looking at what they do and hearing their founders talk. It's a tongue twister. <laughs> you wouldn't think that was a tongue twister, but it was. Yeah. So, you know, I'm always trying to learn about business and investing. 
through other people who I've invested in. So I'm always trying to learn, right? Awesome. I really appreciate the, the breakdown. You're, in a, you're doing a lot of different things, but I love the message there that it's really one thing you got good at and your biggest cash flow and, and capital sources that power all the other investments really came from poker and then teaching and supporting other poker players. So the obvious connection is there. Jonathan, let's wrap it up. Is there anything else you want to sort of share with the audience? Obviously, for websites, we've mentioned pokercoaching.com forward slash free if you want to get started with that. Is there anything else you want to send people to or, or talk about? People can follow me on Twitter at Jonathan Little. I post all sorts of poker-related content there. They can also check out my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash pokercoaching. That's it, you know, show up, do good work, add value, and good things will come. Great. Well, I thank you for sharing the time and it's, it's been great to hear your story. Thanks for having me. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jonathan Little and you are now excited to begin your professional poker career, or if not, at least you walked away with some insights into what it takes to become a seven-figure earner in the world of poker and also some amazing insight into growing a multi-seven-figure membership site and just general advice on how to get good at something and also and a great example of someone who's really prolific with content online and how much that's benefited him over the years. So, I was certainly inspired by that. Before I go, I just want to mention that this episode of Vested Capital is brought to you by InboxDone.com, which is a company that takes over managing your email for you. So if you're drowning in messages, whether it's email in your inbox, it's customer support help desk tickets, it's even direct messages in your social media profiles, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and so on. You need an inbox manager to step in and not just manage and organize your email and your messages, but to actually reply to them for you. That's what Inbox Done offers. It's a company now that's been running for over four years. They have a team of over 25 people managing inboxes for all kinds of different companies from doctors and lawyers, online coaches, venture capitalists, angel investors, car retailers, restaurant owners. It really doesn't matter. We're all struggling with too much email. And if that's you, then you need help. Just head to inboxdone.com and book a discovery call to talk about getting some inbox managers to help with your email. Okay, that's it for me. My name is Yarrow, and I will talk to you on the very next episode of Vested Capital. Bye-bye.